All right, well, I invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We just started a new series last Sunday on the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' greatest sermon. It's actually the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. It's the longest section of Jesus' teaching that we have anywhere in the Bible. It's found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so we're going to be walking together through uh, the rest of chapter 5. We're going to pick up where we left off last week and uh, look at chapter 5, verses 17 and following. While you're turning there, let me uh, invite you, ask you to be praying. We have uh, multiple groups from Moberly who are out and about on various trips this weekend. Our uh, Kenya mission team has been serving in Kenya for the last uh, 10 days. They're actually in an airplane over the Atlantic Ocean on their way home right now. So pray for 36 Moberly youth and leaders who have been serving there in Kenya. God's been doing some amazing things through that team. We also have 55 preteens who are uh, on preteen camp this weekend, including uh, my preteen, Mackenzie, and uh, Amy is there with her as well, but pray that God would move among our preteens over the weekend. And then we've got 40 college and young adults, my whole uh, amen section that normally sits right here. They are on a uh, a retreat in Oklahoma, and so be praying for uh, the college young adult retreat. Uh, as well. I've been a single dad this weekend, so I have a new appreciation for uh, my wife. And uh, I've had two kids, only two out of four this weekend on my own, but I was very proud to have them here today. And um, they had their teeth brushed, and they had breakfast, and they were wearing clothes. So I feel like I'm winning the day. You really need to applaud my wife because she does the single mom thing with four kids every single week, but uh, on the weekends. So uh, that sounded weird. I am at home on the weekends, but I'm talking about Sundays, okay? All right, hopefully you found your way to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, you know, from time to time, I'll speak with a recent uh, high school graduate and ask how it's going, this new life that they've entered into as a high school graduate. And a lot of times they express to me their surprise that life is a little different than they anticipated it would be in this new season. They, they anticipate you know, that they graduate high school and all of a sudden they experience this incredible freedom. And they anticipate that they're going to walk the stage with their diploma and all of a sudden they won't have any responsibility. They can sleep in when they want to. They don't have to study at night. They think they're going to have all this freedom and then they wake up to the rude world of adulting. And they realize they actually have greater obligations now, greater responsibilities now than they did in high school. Now they've got to go to work and earn a, uh, uh, earn a paycheck. And if they go to school, they've got to get themselves out of bed. Mom's not going to do that anymore. And all these types of things, now they have much greater responsibility that comes with their freedom than they did have, have before. I have the same exact conversation, by the way, with many people who are recently retired. Many retirees have the same dream that at 65 or 67, they're going to finally be free and they can do all the things they've been waiting to do and they're going to have all this extra time and money on their hands so they can golf and take vacations and all of those types of things. And uh, if you're recently retired, then you know that that's not exactly how it turns out most of the time, right? Can I get a witness? All right. Now you find out, most retirees I talk with, they find out that they have much greater responsibility than they've ever had, and they're maybe busier than they ever have been before, and they're taking care maybe of aging parents or their kids, or maybe they're chasing their grandkids all over the country to their different sports tournaments, and they've got all of these greater obligations that have come with this newfound freedom. I believe that the same thing is true in our walk with Jesus. 
When you become a Christian, it's easy to think, and sometimes I'll talk with new believers who, who get this idea in their mind that once they experience grace, that that means that they're going to be free from all obligation. They're going to be free from any kind of responsibility. I remember I, I led a, a one young man to Christ one time, and I remember having a conversation with him about a week after he trusted Christ, and we're, we're having a coffee, and I'm asking him how he's going. He's like, man, it's so great being able to sin knowing that I'm already forgiven. And he just kind of had this mindset, hey, I'm free. I've been forgiven. I've kind of got this get out of hell free card and that I can play anytime I want. Now I'm saved. I've experienced God's grace. I can do whatever I want. This is great. Actually, that kind of mindset has been around for 2,000 years. Paul dealt with this in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1 when he says, what, what should we say then? Should we continue to sin so that grace might abound? God forbid. How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? You see, what Paul was addressing there was, was this idea that people apparently had that if they got the get out of hell free card, they've experienced grace, they're now free, that they can live however they want, that they're free from obligation. But the freedom, listen to me, the freedom that grace brings into our life is less about freedom from and more about freedom for we are for sure free from our sin, but we're not free from obedience. We're not free from obligation. We're not free from responsibility in the Christian life. No, God's grace frees us for obedience, for living the life God has called us to live. God's grace frees you to be the person He's called you to be, to do what God has called you to do. God's grace has actually freed you for righteousness. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, and verse 6, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be blessed. In fact, I want you to look at what Jesus has to say about this. In Matthew chapter 5, let's pick up in verse 17. Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called what? Great in the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is saying here is that He didn't come to do away with God's commands. And sometimes we mistakenly think this. We say things that sound theologically accurate, like we're not under law, we're under grace. And sometimes we interpret that to mean that once you experience God's grace, you have no obligation to obey God's commands. Jesus is clearly teaching that that's not the case. He didn't come to do away with God's commands. And if you, if you are somebody who ignores God's commands and teach other people to ignore God's commands, Jesus says you're actually least in the kingdom. But if you do them and you teach others to do them, you're great in the kingdom. Jesus says He didn't come to do away with God's commands. He actually fulfilled them. He was perfectly obedient to God's commands. And by the way, He's the only human who's ever lived who was perfectly obedient to God's commands. But He also makes it clear that He expects us to obey God's commands as well. Now, let me ask you a quick theological question. Are you made right with God on the basis of your ability to keep God's commands? Yes or no? No. This is not a trick question, okay? The Bible is clear. Uh, this is like at the heart of Christianity, that there's nothing righteous in us. We are unrighteous, and there's nothing good in us, and we cannot obey God's law enough to merit 
justification. Justification is a big Bible word that just means to be made right with God. In other words, there's no amount of good deeds you can do or righteousness that you can perform that will make you right with God. The Bible is clear about that. We are made right with God on the basis of what Jesus has done for us, not on the basis of what we do for Jesus. We're, we're made right with God on the basis of Jesus's performance, not our performance. And it's our trust in Jesus's work through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead that, that, that justifies us, not, not our own moral trying. However, with that said, once you have been justified by faith in Christ and his work alone, then God begins a process in your life known as sanctification. Sanctification, which we're going to talk a little bit more about later, sanctification is that process where God makes you more and more like himself. And how you grow in sanctification is by paying attention to God's commands. It's through your obedience to commands that the Spirit of God begins to shape your life and make you look more like Christ. In fact, look at what Jesus says in verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's quite a statement. Jesus says, I want, if you're following me, if you're part of my kingdom, I want you to be more righteous even than the guys who pay more attention to God's law than anyone else, the scribes and the Pharisees. They're righteous. They have an element of righteousness. But I want to produce greater righteousness in you as my followers. That teaches us something important about the Christian life, and that's this, that when you come to Jesus, He wants to produce radical righteousness in you. Amen? When you, it's not just grace to be free from obligation. It's grace to be free to be who God has called you to be and to do what God has called you to do. It's grace that gives you freedom to obey, freedom for righteousness. And Jesus says, the kind of righteousness that I want to produce in your life is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a radical kind of righteousness. Now you say, well, what does that radical righteousness look like? Well, thank you for asking. Jesus gives us four examples or four illustrations of this kind of radical righteousness that is greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. And so he does that in verses 21 through 47, okay? In verses 21 through 47, which I'm about to read, it's a long stretch of text, but I want you to see what's happening. Jesus is just going to hold up four examples of what this radical kind of greater than sort of righteousness looks like in practical terms. And I want you to notice that he gives us a contrast <clears throat> in these verses between the righteousness of the Pharisees and the greater righteousness of the kingdom. And you, you, you notice that when you hear this repeated phrase, I want you to pay attention to it as I read. He's going to say, you have heard it was said, but I tell you, okay? You have heard it was said, but I tell you, okay? That's the contrast. So I want you to pay attention to that. He's going to give four examples of this greater righteousness. The first one has to do with the area of anger and reconciliation. That's verses 21 through 26. The second area has to do with uh, adultery and purity. That's verses 27 through 30. The third example has to do with divorce and keeping your promises. That's verses 31 through 37. And then the fourth example has to do with revenge and loving your enemies. That's verses 38 through 47. So let's dive right in. I'm going to read a large stretch of text, but just notice what Jesus is saying. The first area, the first example he's going to hold up to us is an illustration of this kind of greater righteousness that he wants to produce in us. 
It's the area of anger and reconciliation. Let's dive into verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, by the way, let's just say that together when we read it, okay? But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court, and whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, let's say this together, and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on your way with him to the court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you'll never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. So Jesus is saying, look, the righteousness of the Pharisees is this kind of righteousness that pays attention to the letter of the law. Don't murder. But I'm going to produce something that's greater in you. I want to produce a greater kind of righteousness. The righteousness I want to produce in you is such that you're not just content not to murder people, but you're not even content to be angry with people. I'm going to produce the kind of righteousness where you push back against even those angry thoughts and intents of the heart that you have. And not only that you're not angry with people, but if you happen to have a disagreement with somebody, you're going to be the kind of person who prioritizes reconciliation even above worship in the temple. You're going to leave your gift at the altar. You're going to go be reconciled to that brother or sister, and then you're going to come back and worship. That's the kind of greater righteousness that I want to produce in you. All right, let's look at the second example. The second example has to do with, uh, with adultery and purity. Look, look down in verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Everybody ready? Say this part together, verse 28. But I tell you, Everyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus says, it's not enough just not to commit adultery. The kind of righteousness I intend to create in you is the kind of righteousness that you you care not just about the act of adultery, but the desire for adultery. I want to create a, a genuine purity in your heart so that you even look without lust when you look at someone else of the opposite or even the same sex. And that you so care about purity that you're willing to take drastic measures against your sin. Look down at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. This is hyperbole. It's exaggeration. Jesus is just saying, be willing to go to drastic measures against your sin. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the kind of radical righteousness that Jesus intends to create in us. Example number three has to do with divorce and keeping your promises which those two things are connected. Look down at verse 31. He said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. Let's say this together. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. You ready? But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it's God's throne or by the earth because it's his footstool or by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. Don't swear by your head because you can't make a single hair white or black. That was before all the products, okay? (laughs) But let your yes mean yes 
Your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. So here's what he's saying. The righteousness of the Pharisees has certain laws for divorce, how to regulate it and so forth. They have rules about oath-taking. And the Pharisees, if they want to make you believe them, they might gum up with a fancy oath. You know, they might invoke the name of heaven or the name of earth or Jerusalem or something like that. Jesus says, the kind of righteousness I want to create in you is the kind where you are a truth-teller who keeps your promises. So you don't have to, like, invoke some grand oath. You just say yes, and it means yes. You say no, and it means no. You make a promise like, till death do us part, you actually mean it. And so I want to kind of, I'm going to kind of create the kind of righteousness in you that you are someone who keeps your promises, including the most important promise you've ever made, the promise to be faithful to your spouse. That's the kind of righteousness Jesus wants to create in us. And then the fourth and final example has to do with revenge and loving your enemies. Look at verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now that sounds about right, doesn't it? Right? You punch me, I punch you back. You knock my tooth out, I knock your tooth back. Uh, knock your tooth out. Verse 39. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. By the way, most people are right-handed. To slap a right, uh, somebody on their right cheek means it's a backhand. This is a slap of shame. So if somebody backhands you, turn the other cheek so that they can forehand you. Subject yourself to persecution. That's what Jesus is saying. As for the one who wants to sue you, take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, any Roman soldier had the ability to do that by law, to force you to carry their gear for a mile, Jesus says, go above, above and beyond that. Go with him too. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That makes sense. Love the people who are lovable, hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is upside down, isn't it? Why? So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He says, if you want to look like your Father, do the things the Father does. The Father forgives those who sin against Him. If you want to look like your Father, you forgive those who sin against you. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Now, just note a couple of things about this. First of all, notice in what Jesus is saying with these four examples of this greater righteousness that He wants to create in us. All four of those correspond to the last four Beatitudes that Jesus gave us in Matthew 5, 7 through 10. Jesus, the last four of the Beatitudes, I know you all have them memorized, right? Some of you got a Beatitudes tattoo this week, I know. But blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Think about the examples Jesus gave. Blessed are the merciful. Jesus gives us what that looks like in practical terms. Jesus says, if you want to be a person of mercy, then not only are you not going to murder your neighbor, you're going to not even be angry with them, and you're even willing to be reconciled to them. That's what mercy looks like in practical terms. Pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. What does that look like? It means keep your promises to your wife. Peacemaker, uh, peacemaker. He, he says, don't, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, let's see, pure in heart, I got those backwards. Pure in heart, he says, don't look with adultery. Don't, adulterous eyes, adulterous desire, don't look with lust. Peacemaker, he says, keep your promises to your wife. Don't divorce her. You know the greatest moment of peacemaking you can ever have is with your wife. Your, your marriage is a great uh, playground for figuring out how to make peace on a day-by-day basis. All the married people in the room said, amen. What he's saying is, if you want to be a peacemaker, start at home. If you want to live as a peacemaker, start with your wife. Instead of allowing problems in your marriage to grow to a point that you eventually break your promises and get divorced, instead be a peacemaker with your wife. And then number four, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. What's the fourth example that he, ha- uh, that he gives us at the end of Matthew chapter 5? It has to do with revenge and loving your enemies. What does it look like to be somebody who walks faithfully through persecution? It means that when you are insulted and mistreated, that instead of having this eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth mindset, like I'm going to get back at them when I have the power to do so, instead you love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. That's what it looks like to walk faithfully through persecution. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus is just showing us practically how to live out the Beatitudes here. This is what obedience looks like with tennis shoes on. But second, notice how in each and every one of these examples, Jesus is going above and beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees. What Jesus is saying is, if you know me, if you're part of my kingdom, I'm going to do some radical heart work on you. If you're part of my kingdom, I'm going to create radical righteousness in you. I'm going to deal not just with the external sins that everyone else sees. I'm going to deal even with the sins that no one else sees, the invisible heart-level sins. It's not just enough not to murder. I want to rip anger out of your heart. It's not just enough uh, not to commit adultery. I'm going to create purity of heart in you. It's not just enough uh, not to divorce. I'm going to make you a truth teller and a promise keeper in every area of your life, including your marriage. It's not just enough to endure through persecution. I want you to love and serve your enemies. Folks, this is the righteousness that Jesus wants to create in us. Amen? Now, if you're like me, reading through the end of Matthew chapter 5, it's a little overwhelming. You look at this and you're like, does Jesus really expect this of my life? This seems impossible. It's like Jesus is after perfection. Guess what? He is. In short, what these verses teach us is that what Jesus is after in us is nothing short of perfection. Uh, Jesus' goal for your life is perfection. Let me take that a step further. I would say it as strongly as this. Unless you are perfect, you will not see God. Now, maybe some theological wheels are turning in your mind right now. Maybe you're wondering, did we call a heretic as our pastor a year ago? You know, this is what the Scriptures say. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It means if you're not perfect, you won't see God. You say, Jesus is after perfection in me? Yes. It's exactly what He says in verse 48. Look down at the last verse of chapter 5. It's Jesus' conclusion 
to this whole thing where he's been saying, I want to create a greater righteousness in you. What he's actually after is nothing short of perfection. Look at verse 48. Jesus says, let's say it together, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is what? Perfect. All right, so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Hopefully the theological wheels are turning in your mind. I'm going to ask you just to trust me for a few minutes and to live under the tension of what I have just said, that what Jesus is after in you is perfection. Because I know that there's this thing in your heart that's saying, absolutely not. I'm not perfect. I'll never be perfect. Perfection is impossible. What are you talking about, pastor? Jesus wants perfection? Yes. He says, be perfect. He didn't stutter or stammer. Jesus meant what he said. He said what he meant. Be perfect. So, you know, theologians like wrestle with this. What is going on in verse 48? What's this about? I mean, is, is perfection even possible? It seems impossible. I mean, won't this just lead me to failure and disappointment and hopelessness? Because we know, we all know we're not perfect and we can't be perfect. So why does Jesus say, be perfect? Some people read this and they just say, well, I guess, I, you know, I just fail. Jesus calls me to be perfect. I just fail. So, you know, I'm just going to live a hopeless life, a life of discouragement. Let, let me tell you this. This verse ought not to lead you to hopelessness and discouragement. In fact, it should do the opposite. I believe that rightly understanding verse 48 and how it fits into the context here should fill you with hope. What this verse means is that Jesus, when He began working in your life, is committed not to stop working in your life until you look just like Him. In other words, if you're a Christ follower, what this verse teaches us is that God will not give up on you until you are filled with the very character of God Himself. One day, you will be just like Jesus And Jesus is not going to stop working in your life until that happens. Now, if you think about it, that should resonate with something deep down in your heart because I believe deep down in the human heart there is a longing for perfection. We want to be better than what we are. That's deep down in us. In fact, I read an article in the Atlantic magazine about a secret project that's because they wrote the article. It's not not secret anymore, but... Uh, about how the Department of Defense has been experimenting with different prosthetic technologies and brain microchips to try to enhance our abilities as humans. And so they're fleshing out applications for healing on the battlefield, but also for weaponry, you know, like using human enhancement to sort of create super soldiers. So if you see Iron Man flying around at some point, you'll know what that's about. But the article said that the purpose of the research was, quote, the creation of human beings who are ever more perfect. The creation of human beings who are ever more perfect. And if you think about it, there are so, there's so much about our world that is striving after exactly that, to try to be ever more perfect. Think about the TV commercials that you see. What are they aimed at? They're aimed at helping you become an ever more perfect human, right? So you take the supplement, you buy the Bowflex, you, you put that cream on your face, and you'll turn back the clock. 
You'll get younger, you'll get fitter, you'll get more beautiful, you become ever more perfect, right? So we have health products and body modifications and all of these different things to try to help us become humans who are ever more perfect. That's because there's something deep in our heart that wants that. We want to be better than we are. We want perfection. Listen, God put that in you. You know that something's broken. You know something's wrong. You know something in your life is not right. It's not what it should be. God put that in you so that you would long for the one who can make you what you should be. You see, those things, body modifications and health products and exercise equipment, as great as those things might be, none of that will make you the person that you were meant to be. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can make us into what we're meant to be. And here's what he's after in us. He is after in us nothing short of perfection. Now, that's expressed theologically in two doctrines. The doctrine of progressive sanctification and the doctrine of glorification. Now, I saw some of your eyes just glaze over for a minute. I want you to think about a couple of doctrines and how they show us how this works, okay? Think about, um, think about the doctrine of salvation, okay, how God saves us or how He delivers us from our sin. The Bible tells us that salvation is a multi-phase process. There is salvation past, there is salvation present, there is salvation future. The words that we use theologically to describe this are the words justification, sanctification, and glorification, okay? Can we say that together? Justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification you can think of as salvation past. Justification, this is how you're made right with God, is on the basis of an event in history the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That happened in the past. Jesus took all of our sin upon Himself, died on the cross for our sin, rose from the dead. And if we put our faith and trust in Christ, we will be justified, justified just as if I'd never sinned. And we are saved, we are delivered in justification from the penalty of our sin because Jesus has taken the consequences of our sin upon Himself. So the penalty of our sin is wiped out, and we are saved from that in justification. But that's not all, folks. There's more. Once you become justified, then you begin to experience what's called sanctification. Sanctification you can think about as salvation present. This is an ongoing process where after you've been made right with God, God puts His Holy Spirit in you, and the Holy Spirit begins to change you and shape you to look more and more like Himself. That's sanctification, where you grow in Christ-likeness, and progressively, over time, God works in your life in such a way that you begin to look more and more like Jesus. Amen? That's an ongoing process. It won't be complete until either you die or Jesus comes back. It's a progressive process, which means it doesn't happen all, all at once. Have you ever noticed that you're not as sanctified as you could be? Maybe you were reminded of that on your way to church this morning. Like, I'm not as holy as I could be or should be. That's because sanctification is progressive. It doesn't happen all at once. You're not immediately made perfectly holy. It's a progressive process. But here's the deal, even though you might not currently be as holy as you could be or should be, if you've been following Jesus for any period of time and the Holy Spirit's been at work in your life, you're probably more holy than you used to be. You ever notice, you look back, maybe you look forward and you're like, man, this is what I should be, and I'm not that, and I'm frustrated, and I'm struggling with my sin, and you can get really discouraged by that, but let me just encourage you to look at back, back to who you were before you knew Christ and realize how far God has brought you. Amen? 
You're not as holy as you could be, but you're more holy than you would have been without Jesus. And so that's sanctification where you are progressively in an ongoing way being made to look more and more like Christ. And again, that won't be complete until either you die and go to be with Jesus or Jesus returns and comes to be with you. But guess what? That's not all. There is also salvation future. This is called glorification. And and whereas justification delivers you from the penalty of sin, sanctification delivers you from the ongoing power of sin in your life so that sin no longer dominates you completely. You begin to be delivered from the power of sin in your life. Glorification is that day in the future when either you die and go to be with Jesus or Jesus returns and comes to be with you, where you will be delivered from the very presence of sin. And the Bible says that one day you will be glorified. That means that you will be just like Jesus in the presence of God, that you will be delivered not only from the penalty and the power, but the presence of sin itself, which means you are going to be on that day perfectly righteous. You will be just like Jesus. That's what Jesus is after in you. And it's not going to happen in your lifetime, but guess what? One day it will happen. One day you will be with the Lord, glorified in His presence, perfect, looking just like Christ as a perfect reflection of His glory. Now, if you were charismatic, you'd be running up and down the aisles right now. (laughs) The, The doctrine of progressive sanctification and glorification means that once you've been justified by faith in Jesus, here's the deal. God begins a construction project on you. God begins a construction project on you that is progressive and ongoing, but will one day be completely finished. And what He's building you into is someone who looks just like Jesus. That's what it means to be perfect. That's what it means to have the greater righteousness of the kingdom. It means you look like Christ, and that's the work that God began in you in justification and will finish in you in glorification. Isn't this what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6? That he who began a good work in you will see it through to what? Completion at the day of Christ. Here's some really good news. Wherever you are in your Christian life, however much you might be struggling with sin today, just know this. Jesus isn't going to give up on you until you look just like Him, and you are one day filled with God's very character. That's the righteousness He's going to produce in you, and and it's messy in the here and the now. Sometimes there's like two-by-fours laying around and piles of sawdust in your life, but it's ongoing, and the project will one day be complete. You know, Johannes Brahms wrote his first symphony. It took him 20 years. He wouldn't stop until the symphony was exactly what he wanted it to be. Michelangelo took four years to paint the Sistine Chapel. He wouldn't stop painting until it was exactly what he intended for it to be. It took him three years to sculpt the statue of David. By the way, he was like 23 or 24 when he did that. So what are we doing with our lives? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) That's impressive. Three years. 
but he wouldn't stop sculpting, chipping away until everything that didn't look like David was gone. And you see what, what God is after in us is an ongoing, progressive process that will one day be complete. And what that completion is going to look like is that you are going to be exactly what He wants you to be. And everything that doesn't look like Jesus will have been chipped away. And you'll be glorified. You will be perfect in His presence, fully delivered from sin in every way. He won't finish with us until we are everything He wants us to be. Amen? How does He do that? Well, how does it work? Well, I, don't, I, I want to remind you, this is, this is not something that we achieve on our own. This is not something where, you know, God saves you by His grace, and then it's all up to you to sort of become more righteous, right? Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3, by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the starting point. You recognize I'm spiritually bankrupt. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the spiritual or moral or righteous resources of my own. It's not like I can sort of like get saved and then sort of pull myself up by my own moral bootstraps, and become more righteous. That's not how this works. And yet Jesus says, be perfect. So how do you get from Matthew 5, 3, that you're poor in spirit, you don't have what it takes, to Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as my heavenly Father's perfect? Well, I think the key, the key is Matthew 5, 6, which we looked at last week, but I want to remind you of it. Jesus says, you are blessed when you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And when you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, let's say this last part together, you will be filled. I want you to notice, be filled. That is a passive verb, not an active verb. We've already done the theology lesson. Let me do a quick, quick English lesson. An active verb is when you do the action. A passive verb is when the action is done to you. And Jesus uses a passive verb there. He says, it's not that you fill your life up with righteousness by your moral trying. He says, if you're hungry for righteousness, the righteousness of the kingdom, you will be filled with this. What this means is that this is not something that you achieve or you earn or you produce. You aren't the one doing the action. He is. This is a work of God's grace to make us more and more righteous. This is God doing this in us. It is His strength at work in us, right? Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. Ephesians 2 and verse 10 says, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? We all learned a few weeks ago that when the storms came through, if you don't have electricity, it doesn't matter how nice your light fixtures are. The light's not going to turn on unless you have electricity. It, it, you can have a nice, beautiful-looking light fixture, but unless there is power from the outside, it won't work. And the same is true with our lives. You can try to be as righteous as you want to, but without God's power doing this work in you, you will not be righteous. This is God's work in us. We can't do this. He can. So we need Him a lot. Amen? And it doesn't happen all at once. It's a process, right? He declares us perfect in justification. He makes us more and more righteous in sanctification. One day, He will present us perfect in glorification. We're still waiting for that day. It hasn't happened yet. But just because the construction project isn't complete yet doesn't mean that it's not ongoing. It doesn't mean that God's not at work in your life. He is making you look more and more like Christ. And one day, He will finish 
what he began. Amen? So this should do two things for you today. It gives you something to believe, and it gives you something to do. Okay, the the truth of what I'm teaching you today gives you, first of all, something to believe. There's hope. What this means is there's hope. If it's true that one day Jesus will fully deliver us from sin, the very presence of sin itself, that means there's hope for you and there's hope for me because your sin might be punching you in the face today, but it won't always. One day you will be fully and finally delivered, not just from the penalty of sin, not just from the power of sin, but the very presence of sin. In the words of Colossians chapter 1 and verse 22, one day Jesus will present you holy and faultless and blameless before Him. Can you believe that today? That's sometimes hard to believe because I look at myself in the mirror. I know how much sin does war in my life. And yet this is something to believe. Jesus says it won't always win. Sin won't always have dominion over you. There is going to be a day that you, yes, you, in your sin, in your faults, in your failures, in your brokenness, where Jesus will present you before the Father and you will be holy and you will be faultless and you will be blameless. You will be perfect in His presence. That means that if you put your trust in Christ, folks, not only... Has God saved you and delivered you from sin? He is changing you and he is keeping you. And one day he will take you and he will present you perfect before the Father. So God will one day look at you and he will see nothing less than the perfection of his very own son, Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. It means that on that day, God the Father will look at me and he will not see me and my sin and unrighteousness, he will see nothing but the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So your sin might be beating you up today, but it won't forever. Amen? But then there's something to do. It's true, that day is coming. Glorification is on its way. There's going to be a day when we're presented holy, faultless, blameless before him. But in the meantime, we're part of an ongoing construction project We're part of a sanctification process where the Holy Spirit's at work in our life to chip away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. And here's the deal. That sanctification process is something that you, it's a work of the Spirit, but it's something that you participate in. And the way you participate in it is by inviting it into your life and submitting yourself to God's good work in you. The best illustration I know of this is just to, like the the, the illustration or the example of of a surgery You throw yourself on the operating table because you know you need work done. And you just say to the Lord, God, open open me up. Do the heart work to take take the bad stuff out, the sinful, ugly things out. Put the new things in. Create your righteousness in me. Just invite God to do spiritual surgery in your life because there's always things in our life until we see Jesus that don't look like Jesus. And so we submit ourselves to God's hard but gracious work to sanctify us. So so that could look like simply for you today, tomorrow when you wake up to go to the the, the weekly grind of work just to say to, to the Lord, Lord, take out of my life, chip away off of my life anything that doesn't look like Christ. That's what it looks like to be part of the upside down kingdom. Amen? Let's bow together. Lord, we invite this work 
in us. We want to submit ourselves to the work of your Spirit to make us look more like Christ. God, I think of Psalm 51, if there's any wicked way in me, would you search me and know my ways? Would you remove those things? Would you chip away out of my life anything that's not pleasing? Make me more and more like Jesus. Make our family of faith, make us look more and more like Jesus. And give us hope. Help us to look forward to that day when we're presented holy, faultless, and blameless before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.